What's up, everybody? How we doing? Well, hey, I uh, want to say hey to all of you watching online. I know uh, Shibu's mentioned uh, hi or said hi to you twice now. Uh, once the beginning of the service out in our auditorium and, and uh, here now. And so uh, hi to all of you guys who are here in person. Thanks for being here on a summer sunny day in uh, July. Uh, I want to be the type of person, I don't know if this is true of you too, but I want to be the type of person who lives a well thought out life. I want to be someone who, um, you know, the word, uh, I'm not into choreography because I got two left feet, but I want like a well-choreographed life. I want to know that the things that I uh, am walking through in life are going to be coming around uh, later on in life to put the pieces of all the investments that I'm making, all of the strategies that I'm trying to see come to fruition. I'm the type of person at the end of my days, I hope that it works out for me in the end. I don't know about you, but I wonder if if you wish that it would work out for you in the end, I realized uh, this week that what I really want from my life, like if I could have one wish granted me by some genie out there, the wish that I would have is really weird, but it would be uh, to be Danny Ocean. Do you remember that movie Ocean's Eleven? Some of you don't because it's like 20 years old now. I just realized someone was like, hey, you know, this, this, this story you're telling at the beginning of the message now, it's like 20 years old. Nobody remembers it. So uh, maybe you want to use like Maverick. And I was like, no, I, wanna, I don't, I don't want to be... Tom Cruise ever. I want to be Danny Ocean, George Clooney all day long, right? Uh, if you don't remember the story, it's about this uh, mishmash of um, bank robbers who gather together all of their particular skills to take down a Las Vegas casino. I know, we shouldn't talk about casinos in church. That's like a bad thing. But, but this is a really incredible movie. It's about this guy who's got a vendetta against this casino owner. And so he, he uh, schemes up this plan. It's a very well choreographed plan. And while the movie is incredible because it's got guys like George Clooney and Brad Pitt and all them in it, um, it's the writing that really makes me feel like this is one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, Ocean's Eleven, it's on record right now, greatest movie of all time. Just hit me up later if you think you, you've got a better one, but it's so good. And it's because at every moment, the writing sucks you in with a plot twist that shows you that, that what you thought was going to happen to Danny Ocean, this whole grand scheme that he'd been cooking up, was actually more intricate than we as the viewer thought. There's this one moment where um, they're in the middle of the whole entire hijinks, and uh, Danny Ocean gets trapped by this big old bouncer guy, and he's put in this furnace room, and he's handcuffed, and we think that the gig's up. We think that, like, this is over. How is he? He doesn't get out of this. I mean, this is going to go really bad. Dude's going to jail for sure. And we find out that um, not only is Danny Ocean not messed up, but the guy that is holding him hostage is actually in on the gig to begin with, and he lets him out. Spoiler alert, <clears throat> they rob the casino. Oh, yeah. Does that surprise you to anybody? <laughs> yeah. No. It's not a movie about if they will accomplish their plan. It's a movie about how they will accomplish their plan. And it ends with one of the most iconic scenes where there are sta- these, these 12 guys are standing outside, or these 11 guys are standing outside. Ocean's 11, right, Dan? Uh, 11 guys are standing outside of this fountain in Las Vegas. You know, Claire de Lune is playing that beautiful uh, orchestral song, and the fountains are going, and every single one of the guys looks at each other kind of with a smirk on their face because it's all worked out for them in the end. What I love about this movie is that it, it's, it's so much like life, not the casino part, but the whole having a plan and the plan getting foiled and not really go, anything going according to plan. But it's so much unlike life because in the midst of all of the things that are happening, it ends up so perfect for the people 
involved. That, that to be on Danny Ocean's team is to be $15 million richer and to get exactly what you wanted. And to be against Danny Ocean is to be poor and angry. I think if all of us were writing our script, if all of us were writing our story of life, you would write your ending scene of your life to be exactly like the end of Ocean's Eleven where you're standing at that fountain with beautiful music going, looking around at all that you'd accomplished, smirking with a little bit of a, a sinister, like we did it, I can't believe we pulled that off, type of smirk on your face, and you'd be satisfied. You, you, you would write a satisfying ending to your story. And I think this is one of the biggest questions that keeps me up at night and maybe keeps you up at night. Is this question of endings, of how will this season, this moment, my life, end up? We, we often wonder, how does it work out in the end? You name your it. Maybe you're uh, heading off to high school in a couple of weeks and um, you're going to be a freshman in high school and you're wondering, how, how will high school end? Will I get a... Uh, will, will, number, will I graduate? Will my parents be happy? Will I get a scholarship? Maybe you're starting college in a couple days and you're wondering, how is that next season of my life going to go? How will these classes go? Will it work out for me in the end? Will I get a job? Will I finish? Maybe um, you're in your 20s. You just turned 20. And you don't like to think about it because it's a depressing thought. But one day you'll be 30 and you, you're wondering, how will my 20s end? Will, will I save the world by Friday? I mean, every 20-year-old's asking that question. Can I save the world by Friday? Can it all change? Can I do it? Maybe, maybe you're um, trying to have a family, and, and you're wondering, you're really excited about it. It hasn't happened yet, but you're, you're, you're excited to have a family, but you're also wondering, like, how will this go? Will, will I be a good parent? Will I mess up my kids to the point that no amount of money will be able to fix them? Like, like how, how does it go for me in the end? Does it work out? Does it work out for me? in the end. One of the greatest promises that I think we have in the Bible speaks directly to this question. One of the greatest promises I think of all time is found in, in, in the book of Romans. Uh, it's also one of the most misused and misunderstood promises I think that humanity's ever uh, repeated. It's, a, it's an incredible promise. It's a promise that, that would be encouraging to us. And for all of us who have this question, does it work out for us in the end? I want you to know there's a promise from God to you today that helps you have clarity on what God has for you. Here, let, me, let me show it to you. It's Romans 8, 28. It says this, and we know that in, everybody say all things. All things. God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That is an incredibly exciting promise. That's probably a promise that you've wrestled with when you've gone through a bad thing. Maybe you've gone through a trial or a situation where you didn't feel like maybe God was with you and you, you wondered and, and you came across these words that we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him. It's such a huge promise. The word all is so expansive. We wonder, like, where's the fine print in this promise? And um, here's what I want to do, because here at Heartland, we don't want to assume the Bible says something that it doesn't. We don't want to read into it something that it never meant. Here's a principle for us. Ready, Heartland? The Bible can never mean what the Bible never meant. And so for us to understand what this promise actually means to us today, we got to actually know a little bit about who was written or who was this promise written to you in the first place? And um, don't roll your eyes. Don't 
you know, in fact, if you need to like nudge your husband or wife for a second just to keep engaged, I want to talk about first century Rome. Everybody good for first century Rome? Can we hear for first century Rome? Can we give a round of applause for first century? Can you just like shout first century Rome? I mean, right. I mean, it's a, it's a, okay. So, so this, this promise was written to the first generation of Christians. The first ones who ever established themselves as what we call the church. They lived in the central, most powerful part of the Roman Empire, Rome itself. And the person who wrote this promise was a guy named Paul. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was sent on a mission from God to tell the whole entire world the story of Jesus. You and I are here today because way back in the first century, a guy named Paul went around the world telling and planting the gospel, the good news, with the power of the Holy Spirit so that the, the, the kingdom of God could spread and good news about Jesus would be known. And one of the things that Paul said to these believers in Rome was this, that we know all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And the reason that Paul had to write this is because it wasn't easy to be a Jesus follower in first century Rome. In fact, um, if you've ever heard of that crazy emperor Nero, Nero was uh, so manic, so crazy that he would actually take his enemies and use them as torches to light his garden parties. Do you know who his enemies were? More often than not, they were Jesus followers. Jesus followers who said, we believe that Jesus is the son of God. It's a totally different world than what we live in today because you, you can say Jesus is the son of God in America and nobody thinks you're taking down the flag. But to say Jesus Christ is the son of God in first century Rome was to actually confront the powers of the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus had put on his coins this phrase, uh, Caesar Augustus, Divius Phyllis, which is to say Caesar Augustus is the son of God. And so to be a first century Christian meant that you followed Jesus in Rome. You often were boycotted. The community would actually turn against you. If you owned a store, if you sold goods, and people found out that you worshiped Jesus, you would be excluded from the local chamber of commerce. You would be told not to buy from them. They don't participate in the welfare of our city. They're not actually trying to help us be a shining star of a city. They actually don't love Rome at all. Paul was writing these words that we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. He's writing to people who are in pain. He's writing to people whose lives haven't necessarily worked out the way they imagined it would work out for them following Jesus. They were asking the same exact question that maybe you've asked. Does following Jesus actually make a difference in my life? I mean, haven't you asked in, you know, the, the current state of affairs that we're in today, like, what's the point of even going to church? What's the point of even following Jesus? Like, does this have any impact on my life at all? The Roman Christians were asking the same question, and Paul was giving them this encouragement to trust the divine choreography of history. That the God who had called them was going to, in all things, work things together for good. Now, um, there's a couple boundaries to this promise. Now that we know kind of who it was written to, there's a couple boundaries to this promise. Um, because I don't want us to go out of here and then um, try and counsel people who are in hard times to, hey, we know God's going to work this out together for good. Listen, if, if, um, if that's your form of counseling, you're a terrible counselor, right? The last thing someone in pain needs is for you to throw this verse at them. 
This is a preemptive remedy to the pain that we will experience in life. And so if you're in the midst of a really hard thing right now, I want to let you know, like, it's okay for these words to feel foreign to you, but I hope that they can become an encouragement to you. And if you're in the moment right now of not a crisis, I think this can be a galvanizing force for your soul. Here, here's the boundaries that we have to put around this promise. There's four boundaries. I get these from a guy named James Montgomery Boyce. He was a, a Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia a long time ago. I, I kind of adapted the words for our sake. First is this. It's, um, it's for those who, what? So not everybody gets to claim this promise. This is a promise that is specifically for people who actually love God. This is an experience that only those who have faith in Jesus will ever understand. If you don't know Jesus, if you've rejected Jesus, this is a promise that's sad to say it's not possible for you to feel or understand or trust in. I don't know if that sounds harsh to you, that only people who have faith will ever experience the promise that we're talking about today. Isn't God supposed to be a God of love for everyone? Yes. But this promise is a promise for people who are in relationship with him. And that's exactly how your promises work too. Every promise you've ever made was banked upon and built upon the personal relationship that you had with the other person. Okay, so here's how it went for me yesterday to just prove this point. Um, I told you all a, a couple weeks ago that I'm coaching T-ball. Because no one really coaches T-ball, you just heard cats. And um, yesterday, everybody, to much rejoicing, T-ball was over. Thank you, Jesus. And so my, my five-year-old played his last game. And as the, um, you know, de facto coach for the five-year-olds, it was up to me to hand out the medals. Guess who forgot the medals? I mean, you got, look, you got one job to do, right, bro? Like, you got one job in T-ball is to hand out the prizes. And um, it's okay. Uh, the kids didn't mind at all, but the parents were, you know, uh, so I'll fix that later. <laughs> it was okay because the league actually, um, they did a thing for us. They gave me a whole packet of, of tickets. And they said, every kid on your team gets a ticket. They can take it to the concession stand. They get an icy. And I was like, oh, that's really kind. And um, the coaches got an icy too. And you guys know, I haven't had an icy in 12 years. It was the most refreshing thing ever. But standing next to all these little five-year-olds giving the ticket to the guy behind the counter as he made the icy for them was just this whole picture of, a, here's this thing. I promise you, when you give it to that guy, he's going to give you the thing. And sadly, there were some kids standing next to their brother or sister who had a uniform on who they didn't have a uniform on because they were eight or nine. They weren't a part of the team. And they looked at the guy behind the counter and said, I would like a red and a blue one, please. And do you know what this 14-year-old behind the counter said to them? You don't have a ticket. You don't get an icy. That'll be $3. Let me ask you a question. Is that fair? So, oh, gosh, I don't want to start a war. Someone was like, yes, it's fair. And someone was like, no. Okay, listen, it's fair because they're not on the team. Nothing's fair about t-ball anyway. It's a confusing sport. But, but I just use that to highlight the fact that this is how the basis of all of our engagements work, right? There's a promise based upon a relationship. And so for us to remember that this promise is for those who love God, it says it right there. Paul tells us that if you love God, if you've, 
if you know Jesus, this is a promise for you. The second um, boundary is kind of along these lines, but it's about the word good. We know that God works all things together for good. But what is good? That's actually up to God. I wish um, that this promise said something like, uh, we know that God works all things according to whatever it is that you prayed for. I wish it meant that like God is going to do the thing like a genie for you. But it really doesn't say that. It says he's working all things together for good. His work, his divine fingers in your life, his ordaining the situations of your life, according to his good is the promise that we have. And God is good. So we can trust that whatever he's leading us through will work out for a purpose in life. That's the point. But so often we think that we have the good. And, and God doesn't. I'm reminded of the fact that God is so much higher. His perspective is so much higher than ours. Um, I, I've heard it said this way, that God looks upon all of humanity and all of human history as if it were a parade. And where you and I go to a 4th of July parade, we sit in one certain place and we watch as the band kind of walks by and the people walk by and we see the parade happen one event at a time. God, as it were, superintends the whole thing and looks above it from beginning to end. He could take it all in at one moment and God can see the good from beginning to end while we can only see a small sliver of his perspective. For us to believe this promise means we've got to let go of what's good. That's the second thing. Here's the third boundary. And the third boundary is this, is that God can use then even bad things to bring out good things. And this is tricky. This is really tricky because um, we, we don't want to necessarily say that, and Paul's not saying either, that we should consider things like sickness or abuse in life as good. Not at all. Or even that it's caused by God. But rather, here's what this means, is that God brings good even out of evil. He can turn evil around on its head. The word, the Bible word, is redeemed. God can take a situation that was meant for disaster, and God can do something in the midst of it, and he can turn it around and do something good, even though it hurt in the moment. The final boundary is one that I think we all relate to. It's, let me just show it to you again. Paul says this. He says, uh, we know that in all things God works for the good. But I kind of wish, if I could be really honest with you, I kind of wish that Paul would have said this. And we know and feel that in all things. How many wish like God, you'd feel the God movement in your life a little bit more than you actually do, right? Like that you'd, you'd actually, you, it's one thing to know it, but to feel it, to believe it, to actually like trust it. But here's the boundary. It's that um, we might not always feel that it's true. But it doesn't make it any less true. So what Paul is saying, this, this promise is that Believers in Jesus can bank on the fact that God is able to take every situation you will face in this life and make it work for good by accomplishing his perfect end result. The end result that God desires. That's a promise, Paul says. You can take it to the bank. And that's an interesting turn of phrase. Take it to the bank. I don't know if you've been to a bank lately. It's been a couple of years since I've been to one. And uh, do you remember like writing checks? Remember when you used to write checks? 
I had a businessman come up to me afterwards and say, he, he said, you obviously don't write the checks at Heartland. I said, you're right, you don't want me doing that either. Uh, he goes, I write checks every day. I said, it's great, that's one of us, sir. Uh, when was the last time you wrote a check? It was a while ago. But when you write a check, it's a promise that the money is in the account. When you swipe your credit card, it's a promise, I'll pay you later. You get a loan, it's a promise that you give me this money and I, over time I plan and I promise to pay it back. You sign on the line. Uh, when, when Chris and I were first, uh, we were young, we were married and we found this house that we really loved and adored and we thought we could afford it. We went and we put down what's called good faith money. Do you, do you, do you ever buy a house and put down good faith money? Right, our first house, we put down $100 of good faith money on our house. It tells you a little bit about the house, doesn't it? And how broke we were. We put down 100. The whole point was to say to the seller, hey, there's more where that came from. <laughs> the, whole, the whole idea is like, we're good for more. If you'll hold this for us, we'll come back and get the rest. Listen, um, if our little business transactions reflect the nature of our promises, then all we have to do to test this promise of God is to look at the good faith deposit, his earnest money, as it were, to see how he proves that he's good on this promise. And, and the way that we do that is, is to say this. If this promise is true of us, it must have been true of Jesus. So I want to, for the next just couple minutes that I have remaining, just look at the life of Jesus with you and ask ourselves this question. How did it work out for Jesus? In the end. And so for all of us thinking about God sending his son to the earth, we might imagine that this type of human, a God-man, would have been the most incredible human and the most popular and wealthy and influential person to ever live. But if you've stayed around Heartland any amount of time, you know that Jesus was often misunderstood. Jesus was often maligned. Even his own followers didn't understand the miracles and the teachings that he would give or do. One of the greatest, easiest ways for me to make this point is just to show you the last week of Jesus' life. This is quintessential Jesus being misunderstood. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 10. It says, they, the disciples, this whole group of people following Jesus, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. That's, that's where like the center of the Jewish world was. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. You've got to get this picture of like the noble warrior and his crowd behind him. But look what happened. They were amazed. Whoa, what is he doing? And those who were followed were afraid. Like, what is he doing? The reason that they were amazed and afraid is because just a couple of days prior to this moment, Jesus stood at the opening of a grave. And he spoke to the corpse that had died four days earlier. He called the person who was dead by name. He called him Lazarus, come out. Lazarus was one of Jesus' best friends. Lazarus, hearing the voice of Jesus, even though he was dead, with all the people around watching it, they saw Jesus do the most incredible miracle, which was to raise a dude who'd been dead for four days back to life. I don't know what that would do for your faith, but that would be helpful for me. <laughs> right? And so they're all around and they see Jesus has this power. And so um, Jesus then says, well, we're going to go up to up to Jerusalem, and, and they're amazed. Why are they amazed? Because he just raised a dude from the dead. Why are they afraid? Because he had just raised a dude from the dead. Right? So they're walking up, and Jesus is like, I don't know, you're following this guy who just did the impossible, and it's got to feel like I'd be emboldened. I'd be like, come on, bring it on. Like, we're going to take some things over. We're going to change the world. Notice what happens. 
taking the 12 again. So Jesus kind of huddles up with his core 12. He began, he only began, Mark tells us. He didn't finish. He began to tell them what was to happen, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And kind of like, check, this is the road that goes to Jerusalem. That's easy. He says, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Those are like the religious leaders of the day. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That was the Romans. And they will um, mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after just three days, he will rise. Now, for a guy who just raised somebody from the dead, who had been dead for four days, three days kind of feels like an easy task, don't you think? Three days. After three days, he'll rise. It'd be like, oh, this is easy. Like, okay, sure. The disciples completely missed it. They actually argued with Jesus. See, the picture that they had of what a good outcome for Jesus' life would be was not that he would die. They had no problem with the fact that Jesus had power over death. But they could never imagine the fact that Jesus himself would die. That God would die. No, in their mind, the author of the divine choreography was one who was going to hatch a plan so that his own son would be spared the most horrific result. It must work out for him in the end because God works together for good all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If Jesus wasn't called according to the purpose of God, nobody was. So they struggled to understand, like, Jesus, why would you, why would you die? That would be senseless evil. God must have a different plan. But sure enough, Jesus entered the city. And just a few days later, the religious leaders captured him and turned him over to the Romans. The Romans flogged him, mocked him, spit on him, and they crucified him. Crucifixion is such a, uh, an evil way for someone to be killed. It's so evil, in fact, we don't even do it today. It's so heinous. There, Jesus, hanging on the cross, was publicly shamed and scorned. All of it, suffering, all of it, agony, all of it, evil. And if this is where the story ended, what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28 would be absolutely foolish. Because God would not have worked all things together for good. God would have been just leading his own son into a trap. God would be bad. He would be evil. No, if, if, if this was where the story ended, then all the promise would read is this, is, is simply that evil exists in the world and it's stronger than God. And in the end, death wins. The reason that I wanted to bring us to Jesus' life to prove this whole promise is because often I think we live needlessly under the shadow of death's curse. Even the way I phrased the question at the beginning, will it work out for me in the end, implies my life looking backwards from my deathbed to this day now. That if I am my last breath, 
can evaluate the merits of my life to say all that I tried to do happened, I can die successfully, then my life will be good. But that's broke thinking. That's death-enslaved thinking. This promise from Paul is actually bigger than that. But it's that type of thinking, that death-first thinking, that, that recognizes and realizes that all of us, even Jesus, will die. It's reframed for us how to evaluate the experiences of life. We, we um, have this phrase. You know this phrase. Um, it, it was, it, you've heard this phrase. It's that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Have you heard this phrase? That which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. It was said by this um, incredible person right here. Right? What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. No, it's fine. It was actually said by uh, this philosopher. Pause for laughter. You didn't get it. That's fine. Okay, no, here's who actually said it. It was German uh, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. I checked the records, and this isn't the first Nietzsche quote from the stage at Harlan, but it's one of the most recent. Uh, that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. You've heard this phrase. You believe this phrase, right? Like a lot of you are, are running for Team World Vision, and you're going to do the marathon coming up, and this is like your mantra. Every time you hit the trails, you're like, pain is weakness leaving the body. I'm just getting stronger. Um, but that's not true, is it? You want it to be true. This is an aspirational phrase. This is something that we've used to, to cope with the fact that death looms large in our lives. We want to come to terms with death, and so we, we choose to say that whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. But um, what happens if what doesn't kill you actually just beats you up and leaves you for dead? I've had a, a couple friends over the past couple of years who have... Um, gone through really hard things, but it didn't kill them. But some of them have told me they wish it did. Have you been there? When, when death seems like a better option than living? No, I think there's a particular pain in life where in this type of system that if, if they were able to kill God, if Jesus died, then what hope is there for me? No, the pain that I feel in this life, it can't in that sort of system actually serve to make me hopeful or stronger. It can only serve to depress me and to push me down. If this were right, that that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger, if this was right, then the uncertain future that you and I face would not be worth facing at all. No, the only way that Nietzsche is right is if death itself is not so strong, so death itself must die. And only in a world where death isn't final can we actually say that which doesn't kill me can make me stronger. Let me put in the Bible phrase for, for us all, or back in the church world for us all, that, that the only way all things work together for good is if at the end, death doesn't win, that evil cannot win. And so the, the reason that Paul is right, and God help me, the only reason that Nietzsche isn't totally wrong is because what I gave you about Jesus' life is not the end of the story. 
No, when Jesus was up there placed on the cross and he gave up his spirit and then he was taken down from the cross as a dead man, his body, life was put into a grave. The clock on history just started ticking. And the story, it goes like this. Here's what I want to show you. Because how do you bankrupt the house? How do you take down a casino? You beat it its own game, right? How do you defeat death? Well, you rob the grave. And here's what we see from, from Mark 16. Here's what it says. Early one of the first days of the week when the sun had risen, the women, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the tomb? This is their biggest problem. It's like, we've got a job to do. We don't have the muscle to be able to accomplish this. Jesus is dead. We're going to go take care of business. Then we're going to go back to brunch where we can keep mourning. Looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. Mark puts this in there. By the way, it was really large, right? Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were, of course, alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Ah, gosh, angels. If you ever run into an angel, you know it's an angel because they tell you not to feel the way you're feeling, okay? You just know it's, that's an angel if they're like, yeah, you shouldn't feel like that. You're like, oh, it is God. Okay, sorry. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, like this specific guy is who you're looking for. By the way, he was crucified. You're not making this up. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Then go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so they went and fled from the tomb for astonishment. And uh, 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 astonishment and trembling had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Again, do you see that? Amazed and afraid. The angel announces that Jesus is risen. And just as he said, he, he, he had made you a promise. The empty grave is your proof. And so the angel said to the women that day, you don't have to be worried. You can have hope. You're here in another empty grave. God's, here's what I want to say. God's promise plus the proof that it all worked out in the end for Jesus actually yields for you and for me today living in 2022 an insane amount, an unrealistic amount of hope that death truly is not the end, that God actually in his power and his wisdom can take the most horrific events in human history and transform them, redeem them for the work that he had started in our lives, for the reaching of all people around the world to know the power and the love of our God through Jesus Christ, to know that if you place your faith in him, that he is working on your behalf to make all things work together for good. The empty grave, it's proof of the divine choreography, the genius plan of God to bring all things together for good. Even that Friday that Jesus hung on the cross was renamed. It seemed like it was evil, but when it was viewed through the, empty, through the lens of the empty grave on Sunday, we called it Good Friday. Because God's able to work all things for good. So listen, I don't know how... I, don't, I want to preach for a second. I don't know how your life is going to go or the situation in your life, but I know this, is that with confidence and faith, we have a promise from our God that whatever your it is, you can look to the empty grave and see proof for the hope that you have. Do, do you have a, a thing from God that you need his proof for? Do you have 
sort of like down payment on faith that you need from God, you can look to the empty grave. Do you have a challenge in your life that you don't know how it ends? Just look to the empty grave because for every doubt, there's an empty grave. For every overwhelming challenge, there's an empty grave. For every lost relationship, there is an empty grave. For every crippling anxiety, there is an empty grave. For every illness, for every heartache, for every bill, there's an empty grave. Because our God is able to make all things work together for good. For those, come on, get up, let's sing, let's sing, let's sing.